Live from Los Angeles, this is Rabbi Erez Sherman and Rabbi on the Sidelines. This morning, we are joined by an unbelievably inspiring, not just an athlete, but now an author, Dan Grunfeld, newly released author of By the Grace of the Game, the number one Jewish biography on Amazon right now, first team all Pac-10 from Stanford University, Matt Maccabi, gold medal winner in 2009, son of Nick's legend and Tennessee Volunteers, Ernie Grunfeld, and most importantly, just as we say on Rabbi on the Sidelines, a mensch, a great guy. Dan, so great to have you. How are you doing? Doing great, Erez. It's awesome to be here with you. It is amazing to be here with you. So we're going to talk about basketball. As your book says, basketball, legacy, the Holocaust, and an unprecedented American dream. I don't think I have read a book that has combined those three things in my lifetime. How do you do that? Basketball, unprecedented dream, American dream, and the Holocaust. How do those things come together? Listen, I, I told a true story. So sometimes, you know, the, the world works in mysterious ways. And my family just happens to, to have this really big story involving the, the things you mentioned. And so, you know, you, you said my dad, Ernie Grunfeld, he's a well-known NBA player and an NBA executive. Uh, but few people know that he's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. And actually, the research suggests that he's the only player in the history of the four major sports leagues uh, in America whose parents survived the Holocaust. And so my grandmother, you'll be happy to know, is 96 years old, lives in the Bay Area, uh, 25 minutes away from me and my wife, is doing amazing. But you know, I always was very close with her growing up. She came to every home game I played at Stanford. She dropped off my clean laundry on Sundays, picked up my dirty laundry, stocked my fridge. So uh, I always kind of had a sense of how important her story was. And, you know, my dad finding basketball and, and kind of becoming a basketball star, it, it meant the world to me. And so I really wanted to tell that story. But those three things that you mentioned are intertwined simply because that's how it happened in history. So basketball, let's start with there, sort of the more mundane. In Judaism, we say, Ben Kodesh Lechol, from the holy to the ordinary, when we end Shabbat and Havdalah, but we're going to start with the ordinary and go to the more of the sacred. You grew up, actually, in Madison Square Garden. The way that I walked around the synagogue as a rabbi's kid, you walked around Madison Square Garden. Tell us a little about what that was like and just being basically uh, an NBA boy growing up. It was so cool. And what you said is true. You know, when I, my, my birth was scheduled around yeah. my dad's Knicks basketball calendar. You know, so he Even had, your wrist. Tell that story about the That's wrist. right. He, there, there were two road trips around the time that I was due. And so my birth was induced to, so my dad could be there for the birth. Then he went on a road trip. Then he was back for my bris on the eighth day. And so quite literally, I, I was born into the game. And when my dad retired as a player, you know, he was a broadcaster and an assistant coach. And then he became the general manager of the Knicks. So I had a kind of a childhood that, that kids would dream of and that I got to run around Madison Square Garden and meet the players. And you know, Ares, because you read my book, there's another side to that where, you know, mm -hmm. there's pressure associated with growing up like that. And there are expectations. And those are things that I struggled with. And I'm pretty honest about it in the book. But I wouldn't change anything about my childhood and particularly those moments where I got to experience the NBA with my dad. It was amazing. So just was there a moment or a game that you remember that that is the moment of your childhood that I will always live with? You know, playoff games at Madison Square Garden in the 90s. The when defense the Knicks, chance. And I, and I write this in the book. Yeah. I once went into the garden an hour before the game started and the arena was nearly full and they were already chanting defense. And no one was on the floor. They were just chanting <laughs> already. Uh, 
you know, the Knicks went to the NBA Finals in 1994, you know, and they beat the Indiana Pacers at home in dramatic fashion. And I was there. And it's a moment I'll never forget, you know, because my my dad worked so hard, but he'd also been through so much. And that's the, the book, right, to get to the point where he could run an NBA basketball team and to see that team go to the NBA Finals. It was magical. So your book intertwines two stories. It's not that just you're telling your dad's story, but it is how your own story is intertwined with your dad's story, which, of course, was affected by the Holocaust narrative of your grandparents. We say La Dormador from generation to generation. This is a book of that. So let's go back first to your father's upbringing, right? With the New York accent, he never said, oh, I'm from Transylvania. Who is Ernie Grunfeld? And how did he get to the point of NBA stardom? Yeah. So, and, and what you said, if you heard my dad speak, he just sounds like a New Yorker, right? So no one really knows that he was born under communism in Romania, the son of Holocaust survivors. And so it took my grandparents more than 10 years to get visas to leave communist Romania. Mm -hmm. And so they fled as refugees. And my dad came to America in 1964, having never touched a basketball, not speaking a word of English. You know, my dad had an older brother who was eight years older than him, who was his hero. And, you know, I was in the book. I, I say mm -hmm. what my dad called his older, older brother. It's a, it's a Hungarian phrase, but it translates to my king. That's how much he looked up to his older brother. So his brother was diagnosed with leukemia almost immediately upon arrival in the United States, and he passed away within a year. And so this is a great tragedy in my family. I'm named after my uncle. His, his Hebrew name was Lutzi, but his American name was Leslie. So my name is Daniel Leslie Grunfeld after him. And it's a, it's a great tragedy in our family. And, you know, so my dad, you know, here he was in New York City as an immigrant who didn't speak the language. And he did what the other kids in the neighborhood did. He went to the local park to play basketball. He wanted to make friends and learn English and heal. And it's funny, and you know this because you read the book, I talk a lot about privilege, you know, and I'm privileged in a variety of ways, but one of those privileges is that I have a generation of separation from a lot of, of this tragedy. Yeah. Um, you know, so for me growing up, my mom drove me to every basketball game I played in since I was in second grade. My dad worked with me in the driveway, you know, every weekend for my dad, his parents never yeah. saw him play basketball until he was a junior in high school. Yeah. Tell that story about the fabric store. So your grandparents have this fabric store. They're working from day to night. Your dad's basically home um, doing everything he needs to do. And then I think what the coach calls your grandfather, Apu, I believe that's what you call them. That's right. right? We, we, and he said, get over here. And they walk in and uh, they, he couldn't even get in because it was so packed. And what happened? That's, right. that's right. So my grandparents opened a fabric store in the Bronx and they, you know, they were work, work, work to try to build a life in America. As you can imagine, right? You survived the Holocaust. You flee communism. Now you have a chance in America to build a life. They, they took advantage of that. So and my dad's high school games started at 4 p.m. So they wouldn't close the store early, right? That's like unfathomable for them. Uh, they they got a call my dad's junior year. It was from my dad's high school coach. And it was my grandmother who answered. And, and my the coach said, Mrs. Grunfeld, you have to see your son play basketball. You know, so they closed the store. They went to the gym. It was sold out and they wouldn't let him in. And their English wasn't that good. And my grandfather tried to convince him. His English in particular wasn't good. And, and they said, sorry, nothing we can do. And he said, parents of player and nothing worked. And eventually my grandmother said, Ernie Grunfeld is, my, wow. is our son's name. And the guy said, well, why didn't you say so? Get it, you know? And so the doors flew open and they walked in the gym and, you know, they looked around and my grandfather kind of nudged my grandma and in Hungarian said, well, where is he? If he's such a good mm -hmm. player, why isn't he on the court? And my grandmother looked at him shocked and she said, look, look right there. That's Ernie. You know, and he was wow. standing right in the middle of the court, but, and it's, it's really a symbolic moment, you know, because my grandfather literally couldn't recognize 
a little boy who had come to America and had been through a lot of hardships. Now he was a big, powerful uh, person on a basketball court. And, you know, my grandpa told my dad right after the game on the court, because he used to make him come to the store to work. And he said, you never have to come to the store again. You just play basketball. We'll take care of the rest. So let's just look at a little video about Ernie Grunfeld now going from uh, Forest Hills High School to University of Tennessee. Not exactly a Jewish hotbed, but let's see how he got there. Grunfeld, the volunteers, a junior from Forest Hills, New York. In the long and proud history of Tennessee basketball, Ernie Grunfeld ranks as one of the most productive, most decorated, and most popular players ever to wear the orange and white. Five-footer bottom. Big bucket, Grunfeld's got 21. A swish from Ernie G. Born in Romania, he moved to Forest Hills, New York with his family in 1964. His parents, both Holocaust survivors, opened a fabric store in the South Bronx. While Ernie was learning to speak English, he also learned the game of basketball on the playgrounds in Queens. He became one of the best players in the New York area high school ranks, and he caught the eye of Tennessee coach Ray Mears and assistant coach Stu Aberdeen. Ernie Grunfeld arrived in Big Orange Country in 1973 and made an immediate impact on Tennessee basketball. It is so he gets to Tennessee. Take us through his college career and what that meant to him and that impact that it had on his rest of his life. I'll do that. And just to point out, you know, they show these clips and I don't know if you caught it, but there was a man who ran into the frame and gave my dad a kiss. And that was my grandfather. Oh, wow. So wow. That was up. And actually, that was my my dad because we've watched this together. You know, my dad scored 43 points against Kentucky. They won in triumphant fashion. And my grandfather, they couldn't keep him off the court, right? He ran out to the court to, to give my dad a kiss after the game. So that shows from that first time he saw him play in high school, how how much of a supporter he was of my dad. Mm -hmm. um, listen, you know, my dad was a good NBA player. He was more of a role player. In high school and college, he was a phenomenon. He was, as you saw there, he's one of the best players in the country. In high school, he's one of the best players in the country in college. I've connected with a lot of people at the University of Tennessee because the book is coming out. And I can't tell you the stories I've heard. And they, you know, they said, Dan, your dad's not a legend down here. That doesn't do it justice. You know, he, he's he's even bigger than that. You know, so it's it's really profound what he did. And so he was first team all SEC all four years. He's SEC player of the year uh, his junior year. He or, or maybe senior year, I think he shared the honors with Bernard King, another New Yorker. Ernie and Bernie, they, of Ernie, they were called the Ernie and Bernie show. They both averaged more than 25 points per game one year, you know, which is, it, you know, that that type of thing just doesn't happen. They're considered one of the greatest duos in college basketball history. And so, you know, he to this day, he's the fifth leading scorer in the history of the SEC. Wow. So that's one part. Not many, you know, every bar mitzvah kid sits in my office and I say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to go to the NBA. I said, hold on, let's start with high school basketball. Let's try even college basketball. Right. right? But to be this immigrant from Romania who doesn't see a basketball until 1964, becomes a Tennessee volunteer, an all-SEC player, and then makes the U.S. Olympic team. Tell us the Olympic medal story and what that meant to him as an American, and then we're going to go backwards to your citizenship of being a Romanian. Absolutely. And so, you know, my dad, his star was rising as a college basketball player. He was establishing himself as a top player. And so he had the opportunity to play for the United States national team. And so he first did that in some different international competitions. 
And then he was invited to try out for the Olympic team in 1976, coached by Dean Smith, you know, the yes. great coach from University of North yes. Carolina. And you can imagine for my grandparents how that how they felt about that, right? They had survived the Holocaust. They had come to America's immigrants. And here's their son trying out for the United States Olympic team. And he made it. And so, you know, my and grandparents- there were a lot of people there that did not make it that were probably, that became better NBA players than him. Absolutely. They're Hall of Famers. They're world yes. champions with numbers retired. And it was a very, very competitive group. And he made the team. And so my grandparents closed their fabric store for two weeks, you know, and uh, <laughs> they drove to Montreal from New York. And they saw my dad stand on the top of the Olympic podium with a gold medal place around his neck, you know, wearing the stars and stripes. And um, it's, you know, I live in the Bay Area. And in my hallway, there is a panoramic picture of the opening ceremonies of the 76 Olympics because it hung in my grandmother's apartment for 35 years. You know, that that moment for my family is, it's almost indescribable how, how you can go from point A to point B and, and how a game can really do that for you. That's amazing, the 1976 Olympics, just four years after the 72 Olympics, where 11 Jewish athletes, Israeli athletes are killed in Munich, and we're coming up to 50 years on that this uh, coming September as well. That's right. And, you know, my dad, I, I asked him about that and he said he still remembers in 76, the Israeli athletes with, you know, mm. black stripes on their all their uniforms to kind of, you know, commemorate that. So now I'll go to you, not just growing up in Madison Square Garden, but you speak often about this book, you know, uh, your uncle Leslie was the king to your dad. And it seems like your dad was the king to you and you wanted to be just like him and make that. But there was also there were also some insecurities about how do I do that and can I make that? First, uh, let's go to the high school piece where I, I how did Stanford find you? You always wanted to go there, but you talk about luck. In Judaism, we call it hashtachat pratit, which is about a little divine influence. Um, tell us that recruiting story that I believe was ABCD camp. Uh, That's right. Stanford missed the first half, but got a great second half. <laughs> there, there definitely was divine influence. And I, like you said, I wanted to go to Stanford since I was in seventh grade because my grandmother lives close to campus. I had visited as, as a youngster and I said, wow, great basketball program, great school, close to my grandma, sold, you know? And so I've always tried to set big goals for myself. And honestly, I think it's because what I saw my grandparents overcome and what my dad's overcome, I kind of have the space to dream big. You know, and again, it's kind of another piece of privilege I have, but mm -hmm. I set that goal early. I want to go to Stanford. And so I was playing in a high school basketball tournament in Los Angeles, and I was an up and coming player, but, you know, nowhere near Stanford's level. And my, I was a good student. And so my coaches were saying, come watch him. They were telling Stanford, come watch him. And eventually they said, okay, we'll come watch. And I knew they were going to come. And so uh, I had zero points in the first half, you know? And so I was obviously bummed. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you're released from pressure, it allows you just to kind of act more naturally. And I think that's what happened. And so I started the third quarter and I had five baskets in a row. And I, I write this in the book. I even had a dunk, which if anyone saw me play, that was not yeah. my game. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> I wasn't a high flyer, but I, I dunked the basketball. And so, and then after the game, my coach said, hey, Stanford was there. But, and they showed up at the beginning of the third quarter. So they basically came right when I started to get hot. And, you know, they started recruiting me. And it just, you know, one thing led to another. And I had another opportunity to try to convince them in the biggest tournament of the summer. And in that first game, I had 45 points, which is mm -hmm. the most points I've ever scored. And I really do believe that the term you mentioned, that divine influence was that play because, you know, I got to Stanford I mean, and I was, LeBron was in that camp, right? LeBron was there. We actually, we played, um, well, LeBron was in that tournament that I played in, but he's also in this other camp that I went to as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and we played against each other. I, I don't have to tell you who got the upper hand there. I think, you know, that answer. but, uh, 
but yeah, like, you know, I, I, I played well when I needed to, and I got to Stanford. I got to spend four years with my grandma. So let's go back to you being 13 years old. What was your Jewish identity growing up? Because as is very common with children of Holocaust survivors, they didn't tell their story. As you just said before, one generation removed. And here, but well, your parents did give you a Jewish identity and even had, had a bar mitzvah. Who was Mrs. Brandeis? And uh, how did she relate both to your Jewish career and also your basketball career? I believe she showed up once. Absolutely. Miss Brandeis, Mrs. Brandeis was my uh, Hebrew school tutor. You know, I was, I was, I went to Hebrew school and then I was playing a lot of basketball. And so, and she, technically she, she trained me for my bar mitzvah. You know, she helped me with some Hebrew themed education along the way, but she really uh, was my bar mitzvah tutor. And so, um, first of all, for my Jewish identity, like it mattered to us. Like we went to synagogue on the high holidays, you know, my dad wore number 18 for the Knicks, as you can see mm -hmm. in the picture, you know? And so mm -hmm. it, it definitely mattered. Um, so, you know, I, and again, Mrs. Brandeis, you know, she trained me for my bar mitzvah. I can't say that I always looked forward to those sessions, you know, cause I had a lot going on. And so, you know, and she, she did the same for my sister as well. So she was someone that we kind of joked about over the years, lovingly, of course, but you know, I had moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin in high school, but the camp, one of the camps that we just talked about, ABCD camp, which was like an all-American camp for high school basketball players, which I was <laughs> playing at, and it was kind of my opportunity to get to Stanford. Uh, I, I set a goal to make the all-star team, and I was very close, but I ultimately didn't make it. But I thought I thought that I might because I had a very strong last day. And before the all-star game over the PA system, they said, Dan Grunfeld, please report to the storage table, you know? And so <laughs> I thought I was an all-star and so did all my my teammates and people were slapping me on the back and it turned out that there had been a newspaper article about me in the local paper because i had grown up in this area mrs brandeis had read it and she came to the gym to you know give me a kiss on the cheek and give me some you know a gift bag which is a lovely thing for her to do but at that point in my life i was not only disappointed not to make the all-star team but quite embarrassed so we still we still get a good laugh out of that you felt a fish for the whole team i think yeah exactly <laughs> um so that was the bar mitzvah story. But then when your father, I believe, went to Milwaukee, he connected with a Jewish family who, by the way, introduced him to your mother, right? That's Anywhere right. he went, this Jewish identity followed. So what was that? And, you know, again, could be divine influence, but it seemed like the Jewish journey continued to follow your dad or your dad brought that Jewish journey along with him. He 100% did. And so, and by the way, just, I, I think you'll think this is interesting. So ten, the University of Tennessee recruited my dad so hard. Their assistant coach lived in New York for a month just to, you know, every day he went to my parents' store. What I found out while researching this book and, and even afterwards is that the Jewish community in Knoxville, Tennessee, because mm -hmm. there, there is one, they were recruiting my grandparents. So they told them, mm -hmm. we have a Hillel, we have two synagogues, we have a kosher deli. <laughs> so they were, they, uh, so just so you know, like there was a, that Jewish dread there too. Uh, but when my dad made it to the NBA, he was drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks. And so he was connected to a Jewish family in Milwaukee to kind of, you know, help him out and take care of him. And the first question he asked is very common of a 22 year old Jewish guy. He said, are there any nice Jewish girls in town? <laughs> and so my mom's dad, my maternal grandfather, he was a successful lawyer in Milwaukee and he was one of the original owners of the Milwaukee Bucks. This is back when being an owner of an NBA team was more of like kind of a community endeavor. So he helped bring the team to Milwaukee. So, you know, when, when my dad asked any nice Jewish girls, the first person they mentioned was Nancy Kahn. And so that's that's my mom. And so, yeah, Judaism and basketball brought my family together in that way, too. Um, so I want to also talk about going back to communism, right, that you wrote in the book. When you grew up under communism, you don't know the difference, right? Yeah. You talked about actually 
growing up in Madison Square Garden, right? Those are two very different childhoods. And now you bringing up a child in this country of America during some tensions in this country as well, when you don't know the difference, right? Um, talk about why, why did you say that? And then you write a little later um, about triumph, that everybody's triumph looks different. How do those two comments go together? Absolutely. So, you know, my comment around you don't know the difference is really I learned from my dad because as when we're talking about his story and, and our family story, I remember I asked him, Dad, what was it like to grow up poor? That's mm -hmm. how I said it. And he said, I didn't grow up poor, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I knew nothing different. This was my life. I had I had loving parents. I had a wonderful older brother. We had food. I had friends. You know, if you don't if there's nothing to compare it to that, that's your existence, you know, and so it's not necessarily about the material possessions or the want of things. It's more about what you do have, you know, and so I think that that's that's a really important concept. And you know, for me, as someone who grew up different, I grew up, you know, my dad was an NBA player and then an NBA executive. I had resources and advantages. And I'll say I worked really hard. But I also have to acknowledge that, yeah, listen, I was set up for success in those ways. And I'm mm -hmm. grateful for that. And I always thought my obligation was to make the most of it. And as you read the book, I was a maniacal worker, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. to a fault. And I think, yeah, where's Frank? Who's Frank? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about Frank, too. Um, so I, I was a maniacal worker, I think, to kind of align with those values and to, and mm -hmm. to make sure that I respected the opportunities that I was given because of what my family had been through. And, uh, Frank was my trainer in college. Uh, so Frank was an old family friend from New Jersey who had moved out to the Bay Area not long before I got to Stanford. And he, I, I say in the book, his nickname is Crazy Frank, rightfully mm -hmm. so. I say that again very lovingly, but he uh, he's a very different and intense trainer, but he was able to push me to get the most out of myself. And that's why I was the most improved player in the country between my sophomore and junior years at Stanford. But that came after you had sort of a letdown, actually, during the Alabama uh, NCAA tournament game. So what happened there that said, no, 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 I'm not giving up. I'm actually giving in. Absolutely. So, you know, I came to I was a top 100 player in the country in high school. You know, so I came into Stanford with some nice expectations and a nice future. And, you know, I had to wait my turn, which is which was common in college basketball. Then I played behind people. I didn't get a lot of shots. I was Where were you gone in the transfer portal today? Dang, <laughs> Seriously. I, and believe me, I, I considered it back then, you know, and I'm so happy I didn't because Stanford was such an amazing place, you know, uh, but it was difficult for me. You know, I was I and I write this in the book, my motivation probably outpaced my ability, which which is OK. You know, I wanted it so bad, but it, I wasn't quite ready yet. And I had a hard time dealing with it. And so my sophomore year at Stanford, we were the number one team in the country. We started the season 26 and 0, but I was really struggling, you know, and then emotionally I didn't play well at all. And the we were a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, and we played the University of Alabama in the second round. And we were down three with a few seconds left, and I had a shot to tie the game, and I missed it. So here was this terrible season that was punctuated by just a devastating failure on the basketball court. But and you again, wrote ESPN saying, right? I you made a mistake. The ball I, was well, a dead run, Phil. They, as they were doing the highlight, and I think it was done a little bit after I missed a shot in some sort of highlight competition, but I, I was watching this and yeah, they said, and the ball swings to Dan Grunfeld, you know, as if indicating, why does this guy have the ball? Which by the way, yeah, I wasn't a main player on the team. I had struggled, but you know, for me as a competitor, and as an athlete, I took that personally. I knew someone who was on the show and I emailed him and I said, you're going to, you know, essentially you'll all be sorry about that, you know? Um, this is the chutzpah of a young, motivated person, right? And <laughs> they, they never emailed me back. But uh, 
I made a vow basically that I was going to prove everyone wrong and I was going to kind of become something as a basketball player because that's what I had always dreamed of. And, and I started working out with Frank who had me running sand hills and doing extreme exercises that I never thought the human body could withstand. But he, he taught me that, you know, the, the mind gives out before the body, you know? Yes. And so I just, and I had a lot of dedication and motivation and determination. And so I applied that and, you know, I was a first team all conference player the next year. So I think that goes beyond basketball. It goes to Anya in terms of her surviving the Holocaust. Um, I was so moved by the story you spoke about yellow stars and silver spoons. Uh, tell us what you have in the drawer next to your bed and how that relates to Anya and the mind over the body in terms of survival. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, my grandmother has a big survival story during the war. She lost both parents, five siblings. And when she returned home, you know, she always talks about her idyllic childhood in this big, loud family home filled with joy and laughter. When she got back home after surviving the war, the house was empty and it was looted. There were no people there. There were no possessions there. It had just been looted. And so she didn't even know yet what had happened to her family. And so she was walking around disoriented, confused, and she couldn't find any objects. Everything had been taken, but she opened a drawer and kind of wedged in the back of the drawer was a silver spoon that my, it wasn't silver, it was metal. But, you know, a metallic spoon that my grandmother used to serve milk because they were kosher. You know, so it was a kosher spoon that they used to serve milk. And my grandma kind of took it and pressed it to her heart because it's really all that was left. And so she kept it in her possession for 75 years and then she gifted it to me. And I keep it in my bedside drawer, you know, and once in a while I'll look at it. And it's just it's a priceless artifact from my family. And it just shows what they went through. You know, people, people were killed every possession was taken. And yet my grandmother was able to build a new life. And of course, like my dad becoming a basketball star, they were living the American dream already. But for, for that to happen was just, you know, icing on the cake. What was your knowledge of Anu's story growing up? And at what age did you realize that you had this pretty amazing story within your grandparents? It was kind of a slow build, you know, like I, and, and, and that's, that's normal, I think for a kid, mm -hmm. because there's only so many details that's appropriate to share, you know? So, but I knew at a fairly early age, even before I was 10 years old, that you know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, that family had been lost and, and all that sadness. But the, the details, you know, I didn't really get exposed to the details really until I was in college because I spent so much mm. time with my grandmother wow. that we, you know, I would, I would live with her during the summers. I would, you know, we would spend so much time that, and we would just talk a lot. She would cook me these amazing meals and I would eat and she yes. would sit with me and we would just talk. And so I started to get more and more interested in, in pulling some threads and understanding to the point where I started to get a view of some of the amazing things that happened, you know, when we kind of got through some of the hard things, but then a view of some of the terrible things that happened. And so, yeah, it, it was, it was a slow kind of buildup and certainly the research for this book cemented it all. Cause I had to then ask every question I could think of to really understand the story. So it's important to just let the audience know also about Raoul Wallenberg, Saved by a Righteous Gentile. If you can briefly tell that story, I've not met many people that are descendants of people that have been saved by Raoul Wallenberg, not once, but in fact, twice. That's right. And so Raoul Wallenberg is really a symbol in my family of standing up for what's right. Because like mm -hmm. you say, he wasn't Jewish, right? He, he risked his life and he ultimately lost his life. You know, the, he was taken by the Russians after the war and never seen again. So he, he was trying to save Jews and Budapest, and he's credited for saving roughly 100,000 of them, and my grandmother's one of them. So the first instance of that, he issued schutz passes, which were basically false documents that uh, declared Jews in Budapest as Swedish citizens, and my grandmother had had one of those. 
Um, and so it kind of gave her a little safety net and some protection for a while. She also risked her life to obtain 17 other Schutz passes for people in Budapest. And so I always say my grandmother is my hero, but she's also a hero. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and she, I've heard her talk about this and she said, listen, I, I took the risk, but when you're young, you take risks, you know, and, and you try to help. And so she took that risk, but she, she saved others as well. Eventually, because of a, a government change, that Schutz Pass was no longer uh, valid and they didn't, they didn't respect it. And so she was apprehended by the Nazis. She was placed in the Budapest ghetto. At the end of the war, she was there with her brother. And, you know, the Nazis stayed out of the ghetto. They kind of let the Jews inside of the ghetto run things there. At the end of the war, they saw about 20 Nazis with machine guns enter the ghetto and word quickly spread that they were going to exterminate the 80,000 remaining Jews. Mm -hmm. And so my grandma and her brother ran up to an attic space and they hid there. Uh, they describe it as room for about four or five people. And there were more than a dozen. You know, they were wedged in and they waited for five minutes and then 10 and then 20 and then an hour and nothing happened. And eventually they checked and the Nazis had left the ghetto. The Russian and Romanian soldiers came in and liberated them and that they were free to go. And that was in 1945. 40 years later, they made a movie about Raoul Wallenberg and Richard Chamberlain played the title character. And it was in that movie that my grandmother saw a scene of Wallenberg racing, learning that they were going to exterminate the Jews in the ghetto, wow. racing to the gates and wow. pleading with the commander and telling him, you will you'll be a murderer in history if you do this. The war is over. Let these people live. And he convinced the commander to call off the massacre. So it took my grandma 40 years to realize that Wallenberg had saved her life, not just once, but twice during the war. You know, lots of miracles in Judaism, Hanukkah and Passover. And we think the Passover miracle is the splitting of the sea. And we think Hanukkah is about lighting candles. But what we really don't talk about is the real miracle is that I'm speaking to you, that you are here. Right. Because you watched that movie, because Raoul Wallenberg rushed there, right? What is the miracle that we are speaking about this today and we're not speaking about the people that are no longer i mean that is an unbelievable story it, it is and, and you, you that that's the truth right if if while wallenberg doesn't do what he did so many people die that day and so many families are disrupted and don't exist and so you're right it, it is a true miracle and i'm wow. great and i'm very grateful for him to this day that he did what he did and his example will live forever right because he he is what a hero looks like so the holocaust destroyed families the Holocaust also allowed families to rebuild afterwards. A lot of your family moved to Israel. Your family, your immediate family moved here, right? Ernie Grunfeld could have easily been speaking fluent Hebrew and not the New York accent that he has. Um, but after this, as you spoke about your uncle Leslie, right? Not just the king, but a hero to your entire family. Um, and really your grandmother also didn't speak so much about him either. But right. now you are really bringing his life back in Hebrew. You start to remember. Um, how does that remembrance look in your life right now? Listen, it's it's a very hard thing for everyone in my family, myself included. You know, and being named after him, it's it's a history that I carry. And like you said, my grandmother talks about what happened in the war, and you know, she she talks about some of her family members who who didn't make it, but she doesn't talk much about my uncle, who is her oldest son. Not, I mean, she she will honor him. You know, and she, it's not that she, but it's so hard, you know, and it's not right. something my dad talks about much either. And so, and you know, I, again, I'm named after him and my son yeah. is named Solomon and mm -hmm. my grandma's father who was killed in Auschwitz, his name was Solomon, you know? So I kind of know what it means to carry the name of someone really sacred. And so I tried to kind of bestow that upon my son, but listen, it's when, when a family loses a loved one early, 
it, it, it's a tragedy. It's a hole, you know, that you can never fill. Mm-hmm. Actually, I did a bat mitzvah this past weekend, and the young girl shared her bat mitzvah with the We Remember Us program, which partners wow. you with the Holocaust uh, victim and a 12-year-old girl who never had the opportunity to say the Aliyah as we announced this girl to the Torah. We also announced this young girl who, by the way, was a uh, descendant of her own family, and that person's descendants were actually there as well. So oh, it, was, it was a pretty amazing moment, and I hear a lot of that story of uh, Leslie as well. Uh, I want to talk about Romania for a second in sure. terms of your dad leaving Romania, but for some reason you go back to Romania. <laughs> Share about that, and then we're going to go to Israel. So the reason was because I was having a professional basketball career in Europe, and if you have a European passport, it kind of helps you on the job market because there are certain quotas. And because my dad was born in Romania, he had a Romanian birth certificate, I was eligible for citizenship. And so it took me quite a while. It wasn't the smoothest process ever, but I did get my citizenship. And part of that was I, I had talked to the Romanian Basketball Federation that I would play for their national team. So whereas my dad was born under communism, you know, came to the United States, played for the United States in the Olympics, I was born outside of New York City and uh, went to went to Europe and, and played for the Romanian national team. And so it was, and again, it's an interesting part of the book, right? It's how history repeats mm-hmm. itself, but almost inverts itself in certain mm-hmm. ways and is, you know, so closely connected. And so, yeah, I, I uh, didn't play long in Romania, but I, I did have an experience there playing basketball. What about the Germany part? I mean, you were going to play for a German team and, you know, you could have just signed the contract and go and you get a decent salary. But what do you do? You go to your grandmother and you say, am I allowed to play in Germany? And beyond that question was the answer that she gave you, which is a very rabbinic and Talmudic answer. She said, I quote, the sons are not responsible for the sins of their father. That's right. Did you expect that from her? Why did you go to her? And how did that play out? Yeah, not, I mean, I didn't expect that. I didn't know what to expect. You know, my agent called me. He said, hey, I have the best opportunity for you. You're going to love it. And I said, great. I was psyched. You know, I wanted to start my professional career. And I said, okay, wh- where are we going? You know, I said, great team in Germany. And I said, okay, well, I have to talk to my grandma first. I mean, wow. it, was, it was the the <laughs> first thing that came to my mind. I mean, I'm telling you, there wasn't any other thought in my mind. As soon as you said Germany, I said, okay, let, let me let me talk to my grandma. And I called her immediately. And I said, you know, on you, I, I have a good opportunity to, you know, because she knew I was nervous. I wanted to, you know, start my career. And she said, you know, I thought I had a good opportunity. And she said, Mazel tov, you know, that's wonderful. And I said, yeah, but, you know, there's a problem. You know, it's in Germany. And she said, well, what's the problem? You know, and I said, well, I, I thought that, that, you know, you might not be okay with that given everything that happened. And that's when she said to me what you shared, that, you know, sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. And it was, it, it's really a testament to kind of who she is and her wisdom and, you know, it, yeah, it was amazing. Listen, I went to Germany and I had a great experience there. And you know, I, I, I write about this in the book. My best friend on the team was a German national team player. Uh, we opened up to each other about our family's histories, right? Because his mm. grandparents were on the other side of that war. And he talked about the guilt his generation feels. I talked wow. about, you know, the history that I carry. So, you know, there were, it, it was a lot of kind of meaningful things that came out of that. And what's amazing is the universal language of basketball, right? Like you would never have spoken to that person if it wasn't because you were on a court with the ball, which I call it beyond the game. It's 100% true. You know, we say that the ball doesn't care what language you speak. It doesn't care what country you're from. It has no idea. And it's so true. And I really learned that playing in Europe where I had teammates from Spain and Argentina and Greece and Lithuania. I mean, truly all over the world, there were guys I played with who we didn't speak the same language there, you know, there was like, but we could communicate perfectly and we became friends, right? The ball 
can connect you in that way. And the ball is also can also be a vehicle, as it was for my family, to take you places and to change your life. So let's talk about the Knicks before we get to Israel. You have a major injury that derailed your NBA career, but for whatever reason, you get to NBA training camp with the New York Knicks and you decide not to take number 18, but I believe number nine, correct? That's right. Yes. Why? Well, my, my dad wore number 18. Listen, I grew up that, that Jersey was sacred. You know, that was, that was the, that was the Jersey, right? My dad wore number 18 for the Knicks and you know, I was trying to build my career. I hadn't made the team yet. I, I hadn't earned it yet. You know, and if I would have, if I would have made the team, if I would have stuck with the team, I might have, I might have, you know, taken the the family number, you know, mm-hmm. but listen, you, we know what 18 means in Judaism, right? My dad wore that because it, it's high. And so th- that's such a special thing that I, I did. I wasn't ready yet. You know, I wasn't ready. And so I said, I'm going to take nine. I had worn nine for another team and I liked it. And it was half of 18 worked well for me. Um, and so, listen, I'm, I'm happy with that decision. Also, I, probably some part of it was me trying to build my own career as well and mm-hmm. not, you know, and wanted to kind of have, have my separate identity. But even more so than that, I just, I just don't think I, I was ready quite yet. So before you got to Israel, your dad um, participated in the Maccabee Games. Um, I'm going to show a little clip here about what it meant to him and then also what it meant for you to win the gold in 2009 for him. Great. About, uh, learning about your heritage, learning about the history of, uh, of your people, and uh, just bonding as a group. My son played. It was a great experience for us to go over and see him play, you know, different generations playing. And uh, he really enjoyed it. He got to meet my family there. Uh, my parents are Holocaust survivors. My aunts and uncles who were there were Holocaust survivors. And I think they took great pride in, in seeing a family member uh, reach a high level on an athletic field like that. I think it brings people together again from all over the world and it, and it, uh, it educates people from everywhere else to see what Israel is really like and uh, what the meaning of being Jewish and being part of that culture is all about. So Israel, you wrote that it wasn't just about playing in Israel, but it was about finding a home. Um, your first time, I believe, in Israel was 2009 for the Maccabee Games. Uh, take us that to that moment when you get off that airplane and what you do and realizing it's you found a home. Yeah, I mean, it, it was in many ways a life-changing experience. You know, I, I had never been, but my family, when they fled Romania, as I said, they were bound for Israel. And at the last minute, they came to the States and a lot of our family ended up there. And so I knew it always meant a lot to our family. I was, and I had just never been, but, you know, we, the first thing you do in the Maccabee games is you tour Israel, you know, so we went to the old city, we went to the Yad Vashem and the, and the Western wall and, you know, Tel Aviv, Haifa, the whole country. And you just start to get this really profound understanding of what Israel means to the Jewish people. And it was a safe haven for families after the Holocaust, my, my own included. And so it just started to really sink into me, you know, given all that's happened to the Jewish people and the anti-Semitism we still face that Israel will always be, be there for you, you know? So, by writing the book, it, I realized it was my home and it's home to all Jews around the world, whether we know it or not, because it is a safe haven for the Jewish people, which is something we've needed over the course of history. And so you didn't just play for the Maccabee game from the U.S. team, but you end up making a career there. What were some highlights? That are, talk about your journey to becoming a professional there and the Jerusalem piece, right? I have the chills just thinking about this. Yeah. From 18 on the back of your dad's jersey for the New York Knicks to Yerushalayim on the front jersey um, that, that you play professionally. It, yeah, it, so 
when I played in the McAfee games, I had a year left on my contract in Spain, but I said, when that's done, I'm coming here, you know, cause I, I just knew. And that's what I did. I, my first year was in Herzliya, which is a, if you know, Israel, which is one of the most beautiful cities beautiful. in Israel, right on the beach, right outside Tel Aviv. You can believe me when I say I was living the good life that first year because it was just a beautiful, our team was good. I was playing really well. My wife and You're I were there. Yeah. That's a falafel till midnight. I saw on Shabbat. Um, we, we, yeah, we, we had a tradition falafel Fridays where Friday yeah. after practice before Shabbat, we would go to this amazing falafel card and I would just eat myself silly <laughs> and sleep for several hours to, to sleep it off. But we, we just had this amazing experience. And the next two years I played for Hopwell Jerusalem. So to your point for my family, given where we came from, what we'd been through, what basketball had done for my family, for me to wear a jersey with Jerusalem across my chest was mm-hmm. was very meaningful. And I had, you know, I didn't play particularly well for the team and our team struggled. So it wasn't like the most successful stretch of my professional career, but it was something I would never change. And it was probably one of the most meaningful stretches of my career because, yeah, I was playing for Jerusalem. That that was that was an amazing thing. And hearing Hatikva before every game, the hope, right? Um, I mean, if your grandmother knew that she could sing that song one day that her grandson from America would play in Israel representing them, that is, if that's not the hope, I don't know what is. That's right. And listen, they played Hatikva before every game. Like you said, we would always be standing there and I'd always close my eyes. And, you know, sometimes when you're at a sporting event, you're just waiting for the event to begin. You know, whatever the mm-hmm. ceremony is beforehand, at one, at one point you just want, want the game to begin. It wasn't like that for me when I heard Hatikva in Israel. I, I always closed my eyes and listened and felt it. And yeah, it was it was a powerful thing. So two last questions. The first is a Ray Allen question. And the third second is about Anyu. Ray Allen writes a forward in your book. He's not Jewish. He's African-American, Hall of Fame NBA player. Why him? Ray Allen was just named one of the top 75 players in NBA history, right? So he is quite literally a legend of the game of basketball. But what people don't, few people know, is that he was appointed to the board of the Holocaust Museum by President Obama in 2016. Mm-hmm. So Holocaust education and awareness is really race passion. And I, I tell people for as amazing of a basketball player as he was, and he was that, I mean, he was unbelievable. He's an even better person. I mean, he is, talk about a mensch. I mean, he <laughs> he does what's right. He, he the Holocaust, he saw Schindler's List in college and he was just right. moved by, you know, how this wasn't just a Jewish tragedy, it's a human tragedy, you know? And so he always said, I, I, you know, if he had the opportunity, he wanted to educate people. And he had that opportunity once he became a basketball star and he, he stood by his word. I mean, every time his team played in Washington, he would take teammates to the Holocaust museum. He's taken trips to Auschwitz. You know, he's really made it part of his life mission to educate on the Holocaust. So it doesn't happen again. And not just so it doesn't happen to Jewish people. So it doesn't happen to any people, you know, and my grandmother's the same way, you know, because, hatred, injustice, intolerance, it can't be accepted for anybody. It's not just mm-hmm. us, right? There are others who experience it as well. And so I think that's how Ray approaches it. And I think it's it's beautiful, the work that he's done. And so for, and I know Ray because my dad was the general manager of the Bucks when Ray was a young player. And so when, when I told him about this book, and by the way, he didn't know my dad's parents were Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. right? To our prior conversation, it's not something right. my dad talked about much. And so Ray said, er, er, both of Ernie's parents, right? And so we had a really meaningful conversation and he didn't hesitate. He said, Dan, I would be honored to kind of stand by you with this story. And so it's an incredible act of friendship. And I'm so grateful to him. So I actually have a Yerushalayim fan watching, Ariel Karen, one of the best fans in the stands. He says, we never forget our players. Yalaha Poel, number 21. Is that correct? Wow. That right on the money. Thank you. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I had, I had a good, 
it was it was amazing. I mean, we played in Malka. It's this historic stadium in Jerusalem, you know, and and uh, yeah, it was, and again, like the team struggled a bit, but the magic of it was still never lost on me. That is true. I've been there many, many times. So the last question I have is about Anu. You write her story, your dad's story, your story. But in all honesty, this is a story about your child and the child that you want to bring up as an American Jew or a Jewish American with a connection to Zionism, Israel against anti-Semitism. There's so much here, as you said in the title, right? Basketball, um, legacy, Holocaust, and unprecedented American dream. What's uh, Anya's take on this story now being shared with the world and it will be here forever? She's very proud. She's very grateful. Um, you know, she, she'd always, we'd go on Yom HaShoah to the synagogue and, you know, they'd read the names of family members who were lost. And, you know, she always had said to me, you know, they don't have graves to visit. You know, mm-hmm. they were just, they're just gone. And so, you know, it, it, that's why she has talked about her family members so much to kind of keep them alive. And now I get to say to her, they live forever now, Oof. you know, because their stories are told and people will read them. My kids will read them. Our family will not only just others, you know, and so it's a wonderful blessing. She's very proud. Listen, you read the book. There's hard things in the book, you know, and uh, not only at the Holocaust, but my uncle as well. And so those are, are difficult stories to tell, but she's the first to say just because a story is difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't tell it. And she thinks that this is an important one to tell. So I usually don't end a podcast like this, but based on what you just said about a story ending forever, I want to end with the words that we say every Shabbat after we say the words of the mourner's Kaddish. And it's Zechot Sadiqim Libracham, that the memory of the righteous should be a blessing for all time. That is what I have received from the wisdom and inspiration of your book. Obviously, I love the playing career. Basketball is my sport. I yeah. obviously didn't do it at that level, but I'm in your world now through this Rabbi on the Sidelines podcast. But what your book is about is about living legacy. It's about making sure that not only you don't forget, but that we don't forget that these stories are told to our children, to Jews, to people who are not Jewish, to people who know about Israel, to people who don't know about Israel. My friend Dan Grunfeld, thank you for all the work that you have done and the courage the courage to share on you story. And most importantly, thank you to on you. Thank you to Apu and also to your dad, Ernie as well. It's really been a pleasure. Paris can't thank you enough. It was so great to, to share this story with you. And I'm just very grateful. Thank you, Dan Grunfeld, author of By the Grace of the Game. Make sure you get your copy. If you're a Knicks fan, if you're an Ernie and Bernie fan, if you're a Hapoel Ruchelayan fan, if you're a Romanian fan, if you're a basketball fan, if you're a Judaism fan, this book is for everybody. Dan Grunfeld, Rabbi on the Sidelines. Have a great day.